Our scripture reading is from Luke 10, 25 to 37, and this is found on page 869 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take the one in front of you as a gift from us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to all of you. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning as we uh, continue in our service and look more closely at this passage that Megan just read for us. I'd like to pray and ask that God would speak to us afresh through his word where he is always speaking to us. So Father in heaven, thank you that you uh, speak in your, in your word, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would actually uniquely speak to each and every one of us this morning uh, through this passage in Luke chapter 10. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I've noticed lately that there's been a, sort of a, a resurgence of interest in uh, Mr. Rogers and Fred Rogers. In fact, uh, last night was the sort of the network premiere on, on PBS and HBO of the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And when that documentary was in the theaters, uh, it grossed over $22 million, making it one of the, the top 15 grossing documentaries in history. Um, and, and Maxwell King recently published a biography on Fred Rogers called The, the Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was a Goodreads Choice of the Year winner for 2018. Um, but, but Fred Rogers, he, he passed away back in 2003, so like a decade and a half ago. So it's not as though, oh, he's just passed away. That's why everybody's writing about him, um, studying him. Why in this moment... Well, I think one media commentator and journalist captured it well. He, describing his experience of watching the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, he said, when I watched it, I realized how incredibly unneighborly this country had become. When I watched it, I realized how incredibly unneighborly this country had become. And I wonder if you've felt that in your day-to-day -day interactions. I'm sure you felt it on your social media feed that as a, as a country, as a city, as neighborhoods, that, that we've never been in a place where we've needed good neighbors, desperately needed good neighbors more. 
And, and Jesus makes it abundantly clear in this passage in Luke chapter 10 that we just heard read that, that we cannot follow him without being a good neighbor. If you're going to embrace the life that Jesus offers, receive the new life that, that he promises, being a good neighbor is, is not an option. But who is my neighbor? And, and what really is at the heart of neighboring? These are questions that we are still asking 2,000 years later, and brilliant Jesus' teaching is still deeply relevant and deeply challenging to us even here so many years later. Because Jesus shows us through this story, he tells us the heart of being a good neighbor isn't just being friendly. Uh, it's not just a matter of, of being civil in conversation uh, or, or being nice to someone across the street. It's certainly not less than those things. But the heart of being a good neighbor, what we see in this passage, is a consistent, persistent pattern of giving yourself away. So, so you cannot follow Jesus on Monday without being a good neighbor. And neighbors, they give themselves away. Neighbors give themselves away on Monday. Now, if you are, are newer with us, um, we are in the middle of a teaching series um, called Church for Monday. And we've been looking at the reality that so often churches have been focused primarily on what happens on, on, on Sunday when we're gathered here in this space, but that most of life, our careers, uh, our family, our relationship, our schoolwork, our choices, our, cho our chores, all of that stuff plays out on Monday. Throughout the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, all of life. And we want to increasingly become a church that together we're equipping one another for that Monday life. That when we leave this place on Sunday that we're ready for Monday. We're ready for the life that God has called us to throughout the week. And so We've been looking at the reality that someone who's ready for Monday, they, they take up their cross, they, they put on the yoke, they build their life on the scriptures, they, they love the church. That's where we've been in this series. And in these final three weeks, we're going to look at the fact that those who are ready for Monday, they seek the good of the city. And they do that by giving themselves away, by sharing the gospel and word and deed. We'll look at that next week. And then uh, finally, that they work diligently for the flourishing of all so you cannot love your city well. You can't be ready for Monday if you aren't a good neighbor. And good neighbors give themselves away on Monday. So let's take a closer look at the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10. Now, for many of us, this is a story that we may think that we know pretty well. It's a, it's a well-known story from the Scriptures. Even if you aren't that particularly familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard the language of Good Samaritan before, right? We, in our common uh, vernacular, talk about this idea of a good, a good Samaritan, someone who helps a stranger who's in need, Right? That comes from this particular passage in the New Testament. And the scene in Luke chapter begins with, with uh, Luke chapter 10 begins with a lawyer who's trying to catch Jesus in a kind of gotcha moment. When we, when we hear the word lawyer too, by the way, we tend to think in our, our context of kind of a civil uh, or a trial lawyer or criminal lawyer working in, in a courtroom, that kind of thing. And, and this is a little bit different. The language here of lawyer refers to someone who's a, a religious scholar. They're an expert in what we would now call the, the Old Testament scriptures. And at this point in, in Jesus' life, he's become very popular as a teacher of the law. He's known as a rabbi, someone who's an expert in the Old Testament. And so this guy wants to try to trap Jesus. 
and then broadcast to the world that Jesus has made a mistake. And so he asks him a very popular question at the time. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, every good rabbi in the first century would have had a sort of a pat answer to that question. And this lawyer is hoping that Jesus will answer him and that the answer he will give, he can pick apart in front of the crowd and, again, sort of make Jesus look foolish. But as he so often does, Jesus answers this man's question with another question. And I love how Eugene Peterson captures this dialogue in the message paraphrase. So this guy says, what must I do to eternal life? And, and Jesus answered, what is written in God's law? How do you interpret it? And the lawyer said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer, muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you will live. And I love this line. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? And, and the moment that Jesus affirmed this, this lawyer, this religious scholar, that eternal life comes by loving God and your neighbor perfectly, this lawyer, like the ideal response in that moment is he should have stopped and said, wait, Jesus, that, that's like telling me all I have to do to, to inherit eternal life is just to, to hold my breath underwater for an hour. It's impossible. I can't do that. Can you rescue me? Are you the promised one who's come to rescue me? But, but he doesn't. In fact, he, he does what you and I do when we are painted into a corner. He looks for a loophole. He tries to justify himself. But Jesus won't have it. And his response to this question, but who is my neighbor? How do you define neighbor? Is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. And Jesus begins by telling the story. He says, there's a man walking from, Jer or from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And while he's on his way, he's attacked by robbers. And, and this, that wouldn't have surprised, I mean, that was a very plausible situation. That wouldn't have surprised Jesus' listeners. This particular road is about 17 miles long from Jerusalem down to the city of Jericho. It's, it's a twisting road. It's narrow. There's lots of, of places where thieves, robbers can hide in fact, it was so dangerous, it was referred to as the way of blood. You weren't supposed to travel this road alone, as apparently the man in Jesus' story does. And so he's by himself on this dangerous road, and he gets attacked. He becomes a victim of a violent crime. They take everything, even his clothes. He's completely exposed, bleeding, broken, half dead on this road. Right? So, so, so far, pretty depressing story, Jesus. But it, but it gets worse from here because a priest is traveling from Jerusalem down and probably just finished a day's work at the temple and he sees the injured man there on the road, this victim of a, a violent crime. But instead of stopping to help, he moves over to the other side of the road and continues on getting as far away from this guy as he can. Why does he do that? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly in the parable. Probably a couple of reasons that we can begin to fill in, use our imaginations here. One, I mean, it would have been dangerous to stop, right? Who knows? Maybe these same people who, who did that to this guy are still waiting around the corner. I'm not going to wait around to stop and find out. 
I don't want to end up like him. Maybe it's physical safety that's a concern. Second, you know, a lot of people will point out that as a, as a priest uh, who is engaged in religious activity, he had a certain uh, kind of code of purity that governed his life and his work, and so for him to touch a, a potentially a corpse or an injured person could defile him according to the law, and that would make him unfit for temple duty, which could mean he'd lose income if he couldn't do his work for a period of time. To stop and help this person represented a tremendous risk. And so the priest simply goes on. To stop would have certainly disrupted his lifestyle. It would have made him uncomfortable. It simply was not worth the risk. And maybe this guy's dead anyway. Maybe I can't really do anything for him. And then a second character enters the story, a Levite. Someone who's a little lower on the social ladder than a priest, but still a respectable citizen. Uh, now, the Levite, unlike the priest, probably wasn't bound by as strict of purity codes, uh, but he still passes by. Again, Jesus says he sees this person, he moves to the other side of the road. Again, no explanation is given as why. Maybe he saw the priest as sort of religious superior passing by and, and thought, well, maybe if he ignored him, I should too. Who knows? But I think what we can't miss here is Jesus' overall point in this is that being a religious person does not automatically make you a good neighbor. Being a religious person does not automatically make you a good neighbor. I mean, these two men, the priest and the Levite, they worship the God of the Bible regularly at the, uh, on the Sabbath, on Saturday at the synagogue. They understood the, the Old Testament teaching where God's heart for the vulnerable is on display all over the place, and yet they did not apply it on Monday, on the road to Jericho. Just look, when they, they leave Jerusalem, their place of worship, it does not affect the rest of their week. Unlike the hero of the story, a Samaritan, and we'll get to the significance of this person being a Samaritan in a moment, but a Samaritan, probably out on business, he's, he's not a religious leader for sure, he sees this man beaten, this victim of violent crime on the side of the road, and he has compassion. This is a strong gut-level reaction to the plight of this man on the road. And, and where the other two have moved away from him, he moves toward him. And he binds up his wounds with oil and wine. He puts them on the back of his own animal, walks beside him, takes him to an inn. He stays with him overnight there. And in the morning, he pays the inn craper two days uh, worth of wages and also promises. He says, here's my, here's my visa card. Take this and anything else he needs. Charge it to this. I'll come back. I'll pay you everything to take care of this man. And then that's the end of the story. And Jesus looks this lawyer dead in the eye. And he says to him, which of these three, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? And notice that the, the lawyer, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him compassion. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, there's a lot going on in Jesus' answer in that story that he tells, but, but I want us to notice right off the bat that Jesus does not tell us a story about Sunday. He doesn't tell us a story about a religious moment. In fact, as we already saw, that the bad guys, right, in the story are almost too preoccupied 
with Sunday, or in their case, with, with Saturday, with the Sabbath. But Jesus answers this question with a story about Monday, with a story of traveling along the road, and how people in their everyday lives can be good neighbors or not. You see, we cannot follow Jesus on Monday without being good neighbors. And good neighbors, they give themselves away. Uh, so what do we see in the Samaritan that exemplifies this, this posture of, of being willing to give himself away? What do we learn from him, from Jesus' teaching in the story? Well, the first thing we see is that neighbors give away their preference. Neighbors give away their preference. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus, in this parable, for a Jewish audience, makes their enemy the hero. And he makes their heroes the bad guys. And this is a hard point for, for us to, to feel the force of in this moment because we're so far away from the very real, deep hatred that Jews had for Samaritans. There's a lot of history between these two groups of people, but essentially the Jewish people thought of them as traitors, as heretics, almost like a cultic group. They were untrustworthy, unclean. To associate with a Samaritan was, was to be worse than associating with an, with an unclean Gentile. That's how much the Jews hated these people. In fact, to call someone a Samaritan was like the worst possible insult that you could, could give someone. In fact, in John chapter 8, someone who's trying to call Jesus kind of the worst thing they can think of, they call him a Samaritan. They were that despised. If Jesus were telling this story to you personally, he would pick that one person or group of people who you, if they moved into your neighborhood, bought the house next door, that you would want to put your house in the market the next day. And he would tell you that person is the good neighbor. Now, I almost titled this point, Neighbors Give Away Their Prejudice. But I think that gets us off the hook too easy, right? Because only other people are prejudiced. I'm not prejudiced. Right? We just prefer not to live next door to those people. Or we would just rather not be stuck on a plane next to that person. Or we would just rather not, we just prefer not to have those people over to our house for dinner. Right? So long <laughs> And, 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 but yet we think, so long as we're not actively harming someone, or, or so long as we aren't um, actively discriminating against someone, that, okay, then I've, I've fulfilled what it means to be a good neighbor. But I've recently been really convicted by this distinction between the golden rule and what some have dubbed the silver rule. And how so often as, as Christians, we uh, don't actually live up to the golden rule. We, we live more by the silver rule. The silver rule is this, do not do unto others as you wouldn't have them do unto you. Which is really passive, right? I wouldn't want someone to hurt me, so I'm not going to hurt them. But the golden rule is much more active, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? The priest and the Levite, they live by the silver rule. And they didn't beat the guy up. They wouldn't want to be beat up. They didn't beat him up, but they weren't actively going up. They passed by. The silver rule can so easily pass by. Good neighbors, though, aren't content to just not harm others. 
They're compelled by compassion to actively seek the good of their neighborhood, their city, their world, even with, especially with those who are different from them than those who are vulnerable, those who uh, are, are more difficult to be neighbors to. And compassion is the key because as I was studying this, this passage, one of the things that struck me so much is that it says, Jesus tells us that everyone in the story, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they all, he says, saw the man. Only the Samaritan, though, saw and then had compassion. It's compassion that moves us to action. Compassion is what helps us to see others for who they truly are, men and women, boys, girls, children made in the image of God. And when you're motivated by compassion, the, the passive passing by of the silver rule is no longer an option for you. Right? When you're motivated by compassion, you, that, that silver rule is replaced by the active going over to help of the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? And from the very beginning, we've desired the Brookside campus to, to be a place that would reflect the diversity of, of the neighborhoods and the neighbors on both sides of the state line, on both sides of Troost, which is the historic dividing line between black and white neighbors in Kansas City. And we still have a long way to go in this journey. But it's going to involve us giving up our preferences at times. Giving up what we would prefer to welcome people of different cultural, ethnic backgrounds. We, UMKC, Rockhurst University, lots of international students near us. We're going to welcome those students into our midst. We're going to have to give up our preferences sometimes. Are we ready to do that? To take steps in that direction, right? Kingdom compassion moves us to give up our preferences. And it also begins to move us to, to reevaluate and to loosen our grip on our calendars, which is our second point this morning, that neighbors give away their schedule. Now, I know this point may seem pretty mundane. Neighbors give away their schedule. But it's actually one of the hardest things for us to do on Monday. In our very full and very busy Monday lives. And this can be easy to miss in the story because we're just so familiar with it uh, so oftentimes. But think about the Samaritan. He isn't, like his job isn't motorist assist. He isn't just cruising up and down the highway looking for people to help. He's in all likelihood probably on a business trip. Jericho is a major commercial center with deadlines, with appointments, with other people's expectations. And by stopping to help this guy... Not only did he put himself in physical danger at the moment, but he literally took days off of his calendar to help this person, right? He goes, he takes him, he spends the night there, promises to come back and check on him later after his trip. He's giving up literally days off of his calendar. I mean, how easy would it have been to see this guy in need as, as I've done, seen people in need and say, you know what, I just don't, I don't have time for this right now right? I've, I've, I'm, I'm already late. I shudder to think about that, but if I'm honest, it's true that our schedule is often the thing that pushes us past people in need, more than just about anything else. Uh, the classic study on this was, was done back at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1970s. It's a fascinating study. They took Princeton Theological Seminary students, and they actually had them work on putting together a message on Luke chapter 10, story of the Good Samaritan. 
They gathered those students who had prepared this message in one of the buildings, and they told a third of the students that they, were ready, that they needed to go give that sermon across campus and that there had been a delay in the beginning of the service where they were going to be speaking. And so um, they needed to start heading over, but there was no rush. Um, it was delayed. They told another third of the students, okay, you need to leave right now if you're going to make it there on time. You're not late, but if, you know, don't dawdle if you're, if you're not going to make it to the service on time if you don't head straight there right now. And then they told the final third group of students, the third of the students, that you're actually, you're already late. The service has already begun and people are waiting for you to hear this message on the Good Samaritan. And, and you can see where this is heading, right? So then they place someone who pretends to be injured in between the two buildings on this walk across campus that whenever the student would walk by would kind of groan as he laid in the kind of little side alleyway. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to connect the dots, right? Who was the least likely group of students to stop and help the person? The one who told, were told, you are already late to preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan. But like, you know, we would feel that, right? You feel that pressure. I can't stop. People are waiting for me. I'm already late. And this is, again, this is back in the 1970s. One of the researchers concluded the study of this observation that the ethics, that ethics becomes a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increase. Ethics become a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increase. Again, he wrote that in 1973. Nobody had a smartphone, a laptop, the internet, not that people weren't busy back then, but my point is 45 years later or so, has the speed, the pace of life slowed down? No, it's only increased. Giving away your schedule might mean not finishing your emails so that you can help a coworker with a project that you're probably not going to get any credit for. Uh, it might mean leaving uh, dirty dishes in the sink overnight or leaving the lawn unmowed so that you can stop and, and build a pillow fort with your kids. It, it might mean adding a weekly mentoring or tutoring appointment with a, a child at, at a local school to your calendar. Maybe this week, ask God to show you where you already have margin in your schedule to be a good neighbor, spaces where you can give yourself away, even when it's not convenient. Where can we give away our time for the sake of our neighbor? So good neighbors, they give away their preference. They give away their preference for comfort, for safety. They give away their schedules. They also give away their money. This is so clear in the, in the parable. Think about this, because there's almost, you could tell this story uh, is just as effective emotionally without ever mentioning. A guy gets hurt, a Samaritan goes to help him, leaves him there, end of story, and it's still a pretty good neighbor, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes out of his way to show the financial generosity of the Good Samaritan and all that is required to be a good neighbor. First, he mentions all the materials that this guy needs to bind up the wounds of the injured man. The oil, the wine, the bandages, all that stuff was really expensive in the ancient world. And then Jesus specifically mentions that he gives him two days' wages to the innkeeper, basically buying services for this man for two days and then promising to cover whatever additional expenses are needed for the recovery, food, water, medicine, whatever it is, he's got it covered. 
So, so money and finances, they're all over the store. Jesus wants us to know as his followers, if we truly give ourselves away, it will affect how we use our money, our checkbooks, our financial resources, all the resources that we have. There's actually a pastor who wrote a great book on this um, and how much of this parable really focuses on that. It's actually one of our pastors here at Christ Community. Some of you may have heard of him. Tom Nelson um, wrote a book called Neighborly Love. And uh, if you don't have a copy of that book um, that really unpacks this parable even deeper around those things, there's, we've got a few copies of that in the back on the name table. Um, feel free to grab one. Um, and it will help you go even deeper on thinking about the connection between the compassion that we see in this Good Samaritan and the capacity that it then has to respond and how do we begin to build margin into our financial lives, that capacity to help others who are in need. But maybe your next step here is just to get a sense of where you are at in your, your kind of your financial world in the um, series guide for this week. Uh, there's a couple of really great little exercises that can help you just process through um, budgeting and finance and thinking through next steps in that and how you can make margin to be more generous. And one of the simplest ways you can do this, it doesn't have to be massive amounts of money. Uh, and we actually did this as a church. We had a serve night where we put these together, but we just called them blessing bags. They were gallons of black bags with, with food items, a water bottle, um, resources to hand to people that you might see on the highway uh, exit or uh, driving down the road who are asking for something to need, just to have something in your car to give them. Here's another thing. It's really cold right now, right? Maybe buy a couple of pairs of gloves, hats, a few scarves. Just keep them in a, in a bin in your back seat. And when you see someone in need, you have something to give. Simple things. Are we proactively looking for ways that we can be ready to serve our neighbor the moment we encounter them? Let's take time this week to ask for God's help in creating margin in our lives for that kind of generosity. Are we preparing now to be able to love our neighbors when they need it? Now, as we've done a number of times in this series, as we wrap up, I want to show you a video of how this is actually working itself out in someone's life on Monday. Because it's one thing to kind of talk about this from uh, unpacking the text from Scripture, but I want to actually show you how these texts have gotten into the life of someone in our congregation and how they're affecting all of their life, their work, and what they do. So take a look at this video. I'm Steve Brown, and uh, we have been part of Christ Community for over 30 years. About six years ago, a good buddy of mine, uh, John Emanuels, he and his partner had asked me if, if uh, I'd be willing to come over and help set up a company for them. I had no idea how to do that, uh, but we jumped in together right after the holidays and uh, six months later, in July of 2013, launched an entity called Axiom Property Management. The thought of starting this wasn't just so much uh, for what it needed to be from an economic engine, which it is, but to do it in a way that would be God-honoring and uh, to have an opportunity to um, impact uh, the residents, uh, which the properties that we own, and um, the associates that work for us. Yeah, I think if you had asked me you know, seven years ago, uh, who to pray for at work. I might have struggled thinking through who to pray for. Well, I can rattle off a list of 40 people now that uh, we, we get together once a month uh, and pray for our associates. 
The properties that we take over are, uh, they're older, they've been neglected often by the owners. So all that, I think, is part of just peeling, peeling back some of the darkness too, just in the sense of taking a property that is neglected and making it better so that the community around that property also sees a little bit of God light as well. Last spring I was over here and we had had a, a young high school student <clears throat> commit suicide. And when I left the property, I just thought, man, this is just, there's just a lot of darkness here. And uh, I didn't know where, uh, I knew we had a campus in Shawnee. And so I reached out to the campus pastor and just wanted to know if there's any way that uh, there could be some partnership. And then took a drive to look at the campuses that we, the, the properties that we own in the Shawnee area and just to dream a little bit about what that partnership could look like. From that, uh, we made a decision uh, for the summer to, uh, to do several cookouts. We felt that uh, this would be a great way to, to make a difference at the property would be to, let's start to serve some meals. There's no agenda, there's no, nothing other than we're gonna set up and serve for you and uh, have uh, a chance for you to uh, get to know us and for, Christ community to come on to the, the property and begin to develop some relationships. Again, you look at the Shawnee area and you drive where we're at, I mean, there's some, you wouldn't perceive that there's needs around here. And yet behind these walls, there's lots of needs. And then now as we've uh, come to the, the point of, uh, you decide that we're gonna have a, have a physical facility for Christ community in the area, it's just a stone's throw from where the property's at. So it just was, to me, just a God moment in terms of uh, that call, what you had to share, it's just like, here we go. I don't think that's just by happen chance. I'm sure God had a plan in, in directing hearts and minds in a certain way. Such a great picture of what when you really get this idea of what it means to be a good neighbor, not, not just in, in one-off kind of moments, but in the entirety of your life, the impact that that can have. Steve's at our, our Leewood campus. It intersects with our Shawnee Mission campus as we're seeking to, to serve and seek the good of our whole city in Kansas City. Well, as we prepare to receive communion, though, we have to remember that we cannot be a good neighbor you cannot be the good neighbor that Jesus called you to be unless you have entrusted yourself to the ultimate good neighbor who has given himself away for you. Because remember how this whole story, whole story started, right? It started with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is, well, it's simple. Just perfectly love God and your neighbor all the time and you've got it. But none of us can do that. It's why we have to entrust ourselves to Jesus, who is the ultimate good neighbor, who gave up his preference and his ease for us, who entered time and was born under Pontius Pilate to rescue us, who gave his life to save us. Only when you have entrusted yourself to him will you be able to be the kind of neighbor who truly loves others. Because otherwise there always will be a part of it that's a little bit self-serving, that you're doing it because you feel guilty or you're doing it because you feel like you have to or you're doing it because you feel like this is the only way that God will love me. But once you're secure in his love, once you know you have his acceptance, then you can serve just for the sake of the other person and have a true depth of love in that. And trust yourself 
to the good neighbor, the ultimate good neighbor who has given himself for you.